welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I'm one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I'm super excited to be talking to Dr. Jessica Heckman from The Dog Zombie and from Breeding Functional Dogs. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Jessica. We're super excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Yeah. So um, we had a science highlight that we're kind of working on together. I wrote out my own synopsis for it, but if you are ready as one of the authors, I would love to have you kind of give us the, you know, somewhat quick rundown <laughs> of this of this paper, um, which uh, the title that I've got written down is Advancing Genetic Selection and Behavioral Genomics of Working Dogs Through Collaborative Science, which was published in Frontiers in Veterinary Science in 2021. So um, yeah, tell us tell us about that research. Yeah, and and note that I am fairly far down on the on the mm -hmm. list of authors, or I should say, fairly fairly towards the middle, which um, will let you know I didn't have a massive amount to do with that paper. I sort of helped um, organize pulling together some really interesting work that other people had done. Mm -hmm. So the the really interesting work from that paper came out of. Um, Guiding Eyes for the Blind, which is a school that breeds and trains guide dogs and has a fantastic breeding program in which they have maintained really good phenotype data for many generations. So that's both behavioral and health data. And mm -hmm. then um, also obviously their pedigree data. And so then with such, so, you know, as compared to like a, any, I would say a regular breeder as, as compared to a breeder who's an individual breeder, mm -hmm. they have a much larger population because, you know, they're managing this big population of dogs to produce, um, to support the dogs for the school. And so they have this really rich population that they can look at and do really interesting statistics on to try to understand things about heritability. So there was not, um, there wasn't any genomics in this paper. We didn't go do any genomic testing, but there was genetics in the sense that uh, they were looking at pedigrees and looking at behavioral and health phenotypes, and then looking at um, doing a classic, her classic heritability analysis where you basically put into the black box of the computer the question of given this mm -hmm. large population of dogs, and here are the relationships between all of the dogs, then what does this tell us? about um, how much of the variation in each of these traits is controlled by genetics versus controlled by environment, which is something that the guide dog schools care a lot about. Right. They want to be able to select their optimal breeding, uh, replacement breeding dogs mm -hmm. early on and set them down that path early on um, and, and sort of know early on who, who they're going mm -hmm. to send down what path. Um, and so they use these calculations to do that. So, this um, this paper talked about how this school does that, and then laid out uh, some some useful guidelines for others who are interested in doing the same, mm -hmm. and then also talked about how you know not everybody has access to as large right. a population, and so then talked about the need for organizing around people coming together using standards and. Um, creating data across multiple groups. And the organization that's doing that is the International Working Dog Registry. And so this paper explains um, about that group and how to become involved with it. So yeah. that was sort of that was sort of what it was doing. 
Yeah, yeah. And it was it was a really fascinating paper. I know I'd heard you talking about it previously on other shows and then actually kind of going in and I think this was the first time I'd fully read it. Um it it was it was really interesting and I think yeah, would you feel comfortable kind of expanding on anything? Again, I think we have a fair number of listeners who maybe they've got one or two dogs that they might be considering breeding. Um is there anything that we can take away on this small scale um, from this as far as like these estimated breeding values or is this really kind of a like, mm, just go look at the International Working Dog uh, Registry and take it from there? Yeah, um, I mean, I think the lessons of the paper are that when you are able to pull together large populations, that that's when this really becomes doable. and. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about, so certainly IWDR is encouraging groups to come join them and use their behavioral testing standards. Um, but that is not appropriate for every program, right? So you may have a program where the kinds of things you want to test are not the kinds of things that IWDR's standard tests are right. good for. Yeah. Um, and so if... If you're in that situation, I think the lesson of the paper is to try to work with others to take a population-based approach. And yeah. that I it, it would be ideal to be able to have enough generations of data to be able to actually use uh, what you mentioned, the estimated breeding values. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's, but that's a really big ask, right? Like, yeah. Uh, so I, I don't think we can really expect that breeders would get together and be able to do that, at least not in, in today's world, maybe in the future. Uh, but that's something maybe that we could look forward to trying to figure out how to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I think those, those are the, the lessons of the paper, I would say. Um, but it definitely is the, the perspective of this, this group that is used to working with large populations. And so it yeah. doesn't, it doesn't address the the problem as much of the smaller population, except in terms of like, we'll turn it into a big population. Like, and, right. people. Yeah. and and if you can't really do that, it doesn't, it, it doesn't offer you different solutions. I think mm -hmm. we shouldn't give up necessarily, but, right. um, but this paper is not the one to answer those questions then. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think it's important to kind of recognize, yeah, the scope of a given paper and we're able to read it and say, wow, this is really cool. And, you know, in the conservation dog industry, I don't know, I don't know if there's anyone who really has a breeding program focused on conservation dogs. And even mm -hmm. if there, there might be, there's probably been a couple litters produced with that in mind, but you know, and I know, like we've talked about this, like my dog Niffler is intact and I'm hoping to be able to breed him probably in a couple of years. And that will be a litter that's very much so focused on detection border collies. But a lot of people in this field don't want border collies. So, you know, even, mm -hmm. even if I got, if I made this my life's work to make a conservation dog breeding program with border collies, A, I don't know if there's demand for that just on the amount of conservation dogs, period. And B, like, not everyone wants a border collie in this field. Um, so it would be, yeah, yeah, not necessarily applicable, but still a lot to learn from it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's really interesting insights in there. Um, mm -hmm. I believe, so I haven't reread it recently, but I believe it talks about um, things like their selection index. So how mm -hmm. do you balance all the different things that you're breeding for, right? So in your case, yeah. you 
be breeding for a dog with an interest in, I don't want to say drive because that's mm -hmm. um, a term that's hard to operationalize, but you know, a dog that's interested in working with you, a dog that's interested in using his nose to find things that you direct him mm -hmm. to, um, a dog that's not easily phased by surprising noises. Wildlife. You know, <laughs> yeah. right. Also a dog who uh, can live well with you in your home, who is healthy in various ways. Maybe yeah. you have particular interests in particular types of coats, you know, like the, sure. the really, mm -hmm. you know, too much coat might be a problem going out in the field. I don't know. Um, so how do you balance all of those things? And so that's, you know, that's one of the things that they talk about is sort of, well, rank them and see which is the most important and then mm -hmm. which ones are the most heritable as well, meaning which ones do right. genetics have the most to say about and then sort of figure out, you know, how to make your decisions based on that. So Yeah, yeah. And I think that that heritability question is really important because so much of at least what I think about when I'm selecting a dog are these really intense and varied kind of behavioral questions that um yeah, there's a lot of variability and it's really hard to figure out how heritable a lot of these things are. Yes. Yes. It's very, very hard when you, I think, I think a lot of people may feel like they have a feeling for it um, mm -hmm. in the particular group of dogs that they're interested in. But I feel like it's the kind of thing that it's, it's easy to um, have a particular perspective on a population and then start bringing dogs in from another population and get a surprise. So yeah, uh -huh. it's, um, it's ideal when you can do that study, but again, it's a very big ask. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone has different preferences for how, their dog is going to work and what that looks like in, in yes, this field. And, yes. part and I, I think that's true everywhere, but I can imagine even, you know, comparing to like ag agility breeders, like pretty much everyone in the U.S. is breeding for these certain traits um, within the world of agility. And you may have some different types of handler preferences. I'm not deep enough in agility to know, um, but it seems like they're, maybe because conservation dogs is such a broad umbrella in general, it's almost like saying a sport dog um, level of yeah. variability within just the one, within just the one thing that I think it would be really hard to figure out what, yeah, I don't, what you I want. I also don't know anything about what different agility breeders are breeding for, but I could mm -hmm. hypothesize, right? That sure. some might like dogs that work closer to you and some might like dogs that mm -hmm. work further from you. And some might be breeding with a real emphasis on super fast dogs and others mm -hmm. might be breeding with an emphasis on more thoughtful dogs that mm -hmm. maybe mm -hmm. are not quite as fast, but that they feel like are more controllable. <laughs> sure. Um, so there's just, yeah. so I could certainly see how there could be. Yeah. Well, and actually herding would be a good example. I think yeah. of something that is kind of similar to conservation dogs, you know, you've got people who are like, yeah, I want a dog with a really nice natural, natural outrun or a really good flanking dog. Right. I want a dog who's good with sheep versus really good with moms and you ewes and lambs or, Yes. You know, versus yes. a cow dog. Um, I might have said sheep twice there. Um, yeah. So anyway, it's just, it gets really fascinating when we're starting to talk about working dogs. And I think that kind of brings us to kind of more of the questions that, again, I think we might come back to this paper more throughout this interview, but how how do you go about even defining functional for for this group that you're, you're working with? So what we, I'd we actually go into this on our website, although it's not, I should make it more clear. I'm actually mm -hmm. high on my to-do list is rewriting 
the about us page for our website to make it to make it clear where the answer to this question is because I get asked yeah. it a lot. Um, but the way we ended up defining functional was um, that a dog has, well, that the the breeding population as a whole, uh, whatever your breeding population is, has no more, um, no higher risk of any particular genetically based diseases than the population of dogs as a whole. Okay. Um, so mm-hmm. as a start, so for example, um, say you are a golden retriever breeder and golden retrievers have a much higher risk of lymphoma than the dog population as a whole. And there are some golden retriever breeders who are doing a fantastic job of reducing the incidence of lymphoma for their goldens, for their lines. And so it's, it's lower compared to other goldens, but it's still higher compared to dogs as a whole. And so we're taking the sort of hardline stance as we compare to dogs as a whole, not within your particular breed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So for health um, and then for behavior, we have a list of things like the dogs as again, as a whole, cause we understand this is population. We understand you're going to have outliers. Um, they're living things. They're not all going to be yeah. clones, but as a whole, the dog should in general sort of be able to interact with new situations, um, should not be particularly prone to anxiety when being left alone, should not be particularly prone to fear of thunderstorms, mm-hmm. um, things like that. So it's basically the description of prioritizing those traits above mm-hmm. other traits. Um, okay. So, yeah, and and prioritizing those traits above, when I say above other traits, I mean not just traits like how the dog looks, but also traits such as being part of a closed breeding population. So if your closed breeding population doesn't give you the ability to reduce the risk of a particular genetic disease below what's normal in the sort of population of dogs as a whole, Mm -hmm. then we we would expect you to be breeding outside of that closed breeding population in order to, to bring that risk down. Um, or you are welcome uh-huh. to continue to breed otherwise, but then would not be part of our definition, our particular definition. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that question kind of came up, actually, it was another um, Meg from Patreon asked um, mm-hmm. kind of, yeah, how do we define it? And, you know, I think one of the things that we think about a lot in the working dog world that I don't think is dissimilar to the sport dog world. And like my, my dog Niffler is from kind of working sport combo lines, but not the sort of work I do. Mm. What we would define as mentally functional um, and successful in a home is not necessarily what, you know, the average American with 2.5 kids uh, and lives in the suburbs (laughs) uh, would define as functional. So, and that, it sounds like from your definition, that's not necessarily really part of like we're no, not necessarily we yeah are we no, worried we about energy about levels and right, right. you know n- no, need exactly. to work and those things exactly mm-hmm. so the actually the place where we really struggled was with livestock guardian dogs yeah where uh-huh. having some levels of aggression to other species mm-hmm. is part of their job mm-hmm. and so we didn't we definitely did not want to say and also living outside the home is appropriate for them right and mm-hmm. so we definitely didn't want to to um to make a definition that was so restrictive that dogs with certain kinds of jobs couldn't be included even though the job is an appropriate necessary job that that we breed for we did specify there are some jobs that we don't consider 
um, ethical, like breeding mm-hmm. dogs to attack other dogs. Sure. Um, uh-huh. And so those are not those are not included. Yeah. I forget exactly how we talked about aggression levels, but it was sort of, we, we tried very much to be thoughtful about livestock guardian dogs. Um, we did not talk about energy levels, mm-hmm. tried to focus really on welfare. And it, so I think our definition of functional didn't discuss the match between the dog and the home. Yeah, but that okay. is certainly a question that anybody should be thinking about, right? And it is yeah. something that the FTC grapples with, for sure, mm-hmm. but it's not in our definition of functional. So I think it's a really good point that you could have a dog who's super functional in one home and super dysfunctional in a different home. Yes. Um, and that's, I mean, that's something that all of us, you know, yeah. dog trainers I mean- <laughs> have experienced, for sure. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, and like, you know, thinking through like Kim Brophy's legs model, like yeah. the realm of breeding, the realm of the functional dog collaborative is kind of the genetic side, the G of legs. Right. right. And that makes sense. You know, the environment is not, it's part of the, a breeder's job for sure to work on those matches. But that's like the genetic question of what sort of dog we're producing. Yeah is a little bit separate from that is am i kind of following right yeah i think i think that's right i think that the way i initially envisioned the fdc was very much focused on the genetic side and we Mm -hmm. have we've really started to expand a bit so we have um uh an initiative to provide education for what we call puppy seekers Mm -hmm. Uh, and so our fantastic volunteer jacqueline george jacqueline george Mm -hmm. hedges head is heads this up (laughs) <laughs> I got there eventually. Yeah, um, yeah. that's all right. <laughs> and so that so educating puppy seekers to help them understand uh-huh. and a lot of that focus is on finding breeders who do appropriate health testing and questions like uh-huh. that. But there's also certainly some amount of do you really want a Malinois? Maybe a Malinois is not the right dog for you. Totally. Yeah. Um, that kind of that kind of redirection as well. Yeah, yeah. And I think it makes sense too to, you know, the world of dog breeding is so it can be such the wild west yes. that, you know, trying to figure out, I mean, I don't envy you as far as figuring out like, what are the low hanging fruit that we need to deal with now? And we want to start with versus then also thinking like, yeah, in an ideal world, you know, here are all of the like beautiful pie in the sky things we could do to right. really help in this, in the matchmaking process. Yeah. And I, I resisted embracing us um, doing any odor education at all at first because mm-hmm. I really wanted to focus on breeders. And I think eventually, well, I mean, part of it was that Jacqueline came to me be- feeling passionately about educating the owner's side. Mm-hmm. And um, and I was like, great, you clearly are, are fantastic at this. But also I came to realize that focusing exclusively on breeders actually sort of does breeders a disservice because mm-hmm. it's helpful to them if the people who are coming to them have some idea of what they're doing, who to go talk to, what kind of dog is appropriate for them. That's helpful for a breeder too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And again, kind of 
part of the ultimate picture of a functional dog. This is something that like, this like literally keeps me up as, at night. As, as I said, so Niffler's 21 months old. He's still intact. He's starting to do some of his health testing to think about breeding. And one of the things that like keeps me up at night and tortures me is this idea of, okay, he is so good. He's so smart. He's so well-balanced. He has no big phobias. He works beautifully. La, 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 la. And then I look at him and I'm like, but the life I give him is so outside <laughs> of the norm. How yes. do I know that if I just put him in like a normal sport home that sent him to agility class one day a week, he would be okay? And how do oh, I know that the, the behavioral phenotype I see from him is actually good enough to pass on and it's not just a product of the training and the environment that I give him? <laughs> yeah, so. I actually, um, it's not released yet, but we actually recorded a functional breeding podcast episode about a lot of that stuff recently. Uh -huh. So maybe by the time this Ooh, comes out, okay, my great. Yes. Will be out too. but it's, it's such a good question. Um, I forget if we covered exactly this, but I remember at one point, some of us were talking about, you know, a lot of dog breeders live in suburban or rural areas. They are mm -hmm. less likely to live in urban areas, which yeah. means that even if they do a really, really fantastic job of socializing and training their own dogs and selecting dogs who make great pets, if they're selling to people in urban, in sort of more suburban or urban areas, how can they really know mm -hmm. how their dogs do there? Obviously, the best way to do it is to look at the dog's siblings and previous puppies and et cetera yeah. and see how they are doing. So I guess that's what I would say to you about yeah. Niffler um, is reach out to the owners of his siblings. But um, it's, you know, how, how useful is that? Mm -hmm. And so when we're talking about estimated breeding values, this is exactly where an estimated breeding value yeah. would come in handy if you had that depth of information on Niffler's pedigree, you yeah. should you could calculate it out and you could come to see that the being a fantastic dog trait, ha ha ha, right? Um, sure. is majorly affected by genetics versus majorly affected by environment. Yeah. If you saw that that there was a strong effect of genetics, then you'd be like, great. I feel fairly confident that Niffler mm -hmm. is going to pass on some genetic material yeah. that will, you know, versus if you saw, oh, this is this is really the variability is much more due to environment. You'd be mm -hmm. like, well, he's great, but I am not confident that I'm going to be able to pass that on. So with estimated breeding values where you can actually have enough dogs to calculate out a number, you can have some confidence in that. Yeah. Um, in the absence of those, we say what I just said, which is you yeah. know, go look at the the parents and the brothers and sisters. Um, but there's there's certainly a question of how valuable is that if you're just taking an informal poll and asking people yeah. and you know, you're not doing standardized testing and you're not right. mm -hmm. running the calculations and there's not that depth of pedigree where you're testing three hundred dogs. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, how valuable is it to ask three owners? Uh, about how their dogs are doing and have them just sort of give you a verbal, like, I think he's great. Um, right. Mm -hmm. No, I don't know. It's, it's a hard question. It, yeah, it is. And then, you know, on the flip side, if there's something that you don't like in a given dog, then trying to figure out like Niffler is not as a hundred percent perfect, consistent, never barky with strangers as I would like. Sure. He can. So for example, um, a week ago, the belt tensioner on my van went and I had to spend six hours unexpectedly in mm -hmm. a mechanic's shop. And I had both dogs with me. He barked at one person over the course of the entire six hours sitting in a shop. Otherwise he just slept. 
and I still, every time one of those interactions happens, I'm like, oh my God, he's reactive. I can't add that to the gene pool. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, and then, you know, I also, you know, so, and then I kind of go back and I'm like, well, he was raised on a farm in Idaho. He didn't really get out for his first nine weeks. Then when I had him, it was December in Montana in 2020 during the pandemic. So he also did not have like the most ideal socialization ever. But the last thing I would want to do is make excuses and then bring a litter of puppies into the world that do tend to be more flighty or nervous with strangers. Again, especially kind of going back to what the FTC defines as, or the FDC, not the FTC, that's different, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> defines as functional. Border Collies already tend a little bit towards that nervous with strangers, reactive whatever label we want to put at it thing. Um, so that's, this is now turning into my like breeding existential therapy session. But I'll, <laughs> so I'll let you talk. Yeah. Now. <laughs> no, well, I don't know. No, I was listening to you talk and I was like, Oh, I don't know what I'm going to say. Cause it's, that is a hard <laughs> question. Right. Um, and we certainly talk about, you know, if that's a concern, then you find a mate for him who mm-hmm. is very complimentary in that direction. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and I think the other thing is if you're trying to get a handle on how bad is it and you feel like it's hard for you to assess your own dog, you could try to have someone else assess him. Um, yeah. I think that's an excellent idea. I think it's really yeah, hard I love for us that. to assess our own dogs. Mm-hmm. And I think you may be being a little hard on him because of your own anxiety. Oh, th- yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I do. And especially when I talk to his dog sitters or friends who have watched him, yes. Yes. that almost or like my mom <laughs> who has yeah. spent quite a bit of time with him and is not in the dog world and i'm like but mom you're not in the dog book tea facebook group you don't know how mean these people can be yeah. <laughs> um well and so. that's another thing is that when you breed um and you talk about it on facebook there's this expectation that you'll be breeding the perfect dog every time mm-hmm. and i don't I, I think there's almost this expectation because no one has the perfect dog but mm-hmm. people recognize that if they don't say their dog is perfect on Facebook, they will be, um, they will possibly be in for a rough ride. Yeah. And so there is an incentive against transparency. I would say transparency is often Mm -hmm. punished on Facebook. And as we both know, punishment reduces behavior. Yes. So similar to, you know, if we could take it to like the epilepsy question in border collies where, there's not a strong incentive to be honest and clear about the epilepsy that shows up in your lines. Um, and that, that is something that really yeah. should be, should quote unquote, that's a hard word, but like it should be easier to just kind of check a box and say yes or no, there's epilepsy in my dog's direct pedigree. Yeah. And it's yeah. not. It's, I think I've heard people say basically there is epilepsy in your border collie's lines, but the only <laughs> question is whether you know about it or not. Exactly. Um, um, speaking as I just, I actually, uh, I think we have successfully diagnosed my border collie with focal seizures, which was, oh, has been really, uh, uh, this is my first time I've said that publicly. It's just really wow, been yeah. interesting um, that I thought I would have recognized focal seizures. I didn't. Uh, my behavior consultant did. We put them on. Um, anti-epileptic meds and mm-hmm. his behavior has started really changing and i was like wow oh, interesting and then i was like well he is a border collie <laughs> yeah yeah well so wow, it's just, that's yeah, fascinating so that's, well and especially i mean just knowing how 
knowledgeable you are and you still didn't see I it. I did. And like, in wow. how many tests I've done, like I uh-huh. believed for years that there's something systemically wrong with him. And uh-huh. I've tested everything I could think of and epilepsy was not on my list. I did yeah. not recognize that it could, it could appear that way. And so I guess part of why I'm saying that is that if you have a border collie, mm-hmm. it could actually be having focal shoot seizures and you might very you might well not, even not know. recognize that. So um, yeah. Can I ask yes. how it presented in this way? Yes. That, yes. Like, because clearly it wasn't like a tonic clonic full no. on, like so, not what we think of when we think seizure. Right. So, so when I tell you what he does, you're sort of, I think the first, the first impulse would be to be like, well, why didn't you recognize that? It's weird. But I, so I want to preface this mm-hmm. with, this is a dog who was bred in a puppy mill that mm-hmm. had multiple USDA violations. Okay. And he was sold in a pet store to people who surely did not understand border collies. Mm -hmm. He went to his first shelter at age eight months, his second shelter at age 22 months, and then came to me and did not really, and they, I don't think he knew any words. He knew no words when he came to me. Oh my gosh. He's a border collie. (laughs) And he knew no words. And he had so little muscle, he couldn't jump up on the bed. Like he would come and cry to be lifted on the bed. Oh my God. Um, so there was a lot to untangle with this dog. Uh-huh. And I cannot so imagine this, managing to get to 22 months with a border collie and not having it know something. Yeah. I That's don't, almost He must impressive. have known something, but I tried him on the name that he had that he came to the shelter uh-huh, with, uh-huh. and he didn't know that, and he didn't know sit. So, like, those are my go-tos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, if you don't <laughs> know your dad, name. If you don't yeah. know those two things. Um, he like, does he know cookie? Up. Does he know ball? <laughs> like, I nothing. will say he learned his new name within a day. <laughs> uh, well, that's good. Okay, <laughs> he's pretty quick on the uptake with words. But um, so, okay. anyways, given all of that, and then he had all, and then he just had this like he would be very, very. Uh, he'd be hyperactive, but then he'd crash and he'd spend days or even weeks just being very depressed. And oh, uh, anyway, so with uh, amid all of this, when I was trying to train him, he would disconnect and look away. Mm-hmm. and it was very hard for him to make eye contact and hard for him to interact mm-hmm. with me. And I, I mean, I don't even have to say, right. You can see how there's any number of stories for what yeah. that was, but the looking away and not interacting with the world turned out, I now believe to be a focal seizure because wow. when we put him on the meds, it stopped. Wow. I mean, I, yeah, I don't yeah. think I would have recognized that. I would have immediately, like, right. my first thought would have been, I'm like, putting too much pressure on him. Yeah, I'm right, clearing right, right. my training. I've so, stressed him yes, out. I did the a reinforcer lot of pattern games. Right, uh-huh. right. I did pattern games. I did leaving him alone. I did. I exactly <sighs> thought I put too much pressure on him. Uh-huh. And I did a lot of just like, I'm going to say your name and throw food. That's it. You know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I, I think I definitely was putting too much pressure on him in times. Wow. Um, there's a lot of ways in which he's more comfortable with my husband than with me. Um, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of that mm-hmm. is because I have you been trying so hard him. to fix yeah. him. Uh-huh. <laughs> and my yeah. husband is just the guy who plays tug with him and takes him for walks. Yeah. Um, but, and bike rides. Ooh, but um, yeah, so it's been fascinating. This yeah. his, his gradually increasing ability to keep his shit together he can hold himself together much better now uh-huh um, it's just really interesting and i just feel like his brain is much quieter yeah so Gosh, well and that yeah again i can totally see 
I don't, I don't think I would have recognized that immediately, um, yeah. especially with a dog with that sort of history. There are so many, you know, if we think about parsimony, there's so many other things yeah. I would think of first, given his, yeah. or yeah, given his background. Um, yeah. Well, and thank I you for sharing that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 I never would have recognized that it was his behavior consultant, Sarah Strumming, who recognized that. So yeah. good for well, her. shout out to Sarah. Sarah she, I yeah. was actually just thinking of the episode that she had with the dog with the zinc deficiency and just, yeah, uh, we're, we're looking into that with him as well. Oh, so. interesting. Yeah. There's, yeah. I mean, if I ever, I hope I never need Sarah's help. <laughs> But if I ever have something I really can't figure out, um, yeah, I, yeah. I'm now pretty convinced that I will be going to her for anything where yeah. I'm like, I just really, this seems like it must be more than behavioral or it's beyond my behavioral capabilities. And again, I hope I never have to, but yeah, no, she's been, she's been fantastic. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Again, thank I, you yeah. for sharing that. Cause that's, yeah, that's, sure. that's gotta be I, hard I to like talk I've, about. Yeah. 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 I hope I haven't detoured us from no, um, not conservation at all. dogs too far. So. No, it's okay. Uh, we're, I mean, we're here to talk. We've, we've got dog nerds yeah. in the audience. <laughs> so yeah, it's yeah. All right. So yeah, kind of, I guess we will go back to the FDC now. What are some of the things that you kind of see as common pitfalls or traps or hiccups that breeding programs with again, like with a really highly specific goal in mind can run into what are some of one of some of our yeah pitfalls? I think one thing that I learned from again, from guiding eyes for the blind, that was really interesting was when you so they are breeding for a, a fairly specific phenotype, a complicated phenotype, right? There's a lot of different yeah. um, behavioral traits that they're breeding for and that they're balancing and they've done a fantastic job and they have and not that all their dogs have to be exactly the same like they want some to be mm -hmm. faster and some to be slower and some to be larger and some to be smaller but they definitely have gotten to a point where in their breeding population they have um they are very close to where they want to be and mm -hmm. um and you can like when you go and interact with their dogs you're like oh yes that is you know you can recognize that type yeah and they they recognize that they have to bring in dogs from other populations uh -huh. every so often to keep their genetic diversity up um, because otherwise they will have bad problems down the road and they deal with that sooner rather than later. And they understand Smart. they're going to take a phenotypic hit. So yeah. they know that the first generation of bringing in these dogs from outside is not going to be exactly what they want. And it may be that the other program is very good that they're bringing a dog in from, but just that they're breeding for something slightly different. Sure. And then mm -hmm. it's going to take them a while to, to breed back. Um, not that long, right? By the second generation there, they have what they want again, uh, but they have to take that hit and they have to do it regularly. They cannot mm -hmm. wait until they are in a hole and then mm -hmm. start trying to like push yeah. the, um, push the diversity. And then, because then you're sort of, cause you have to, you have to dribble it in, in little bits throughout the population so that it mixes yeah. all through. You can't just expect to bring in one new dog and be like, okay, done. Um, right. It doesn't work that way. Cause you're just breeding all the diversity right back out again. Right. And you have to keep bringing it in. So they recognize that. And I think that's really hard for breeders, particularly when they get to the point in their breeding where they're like, okay, I've been working on this for, you know, years, generations, decades. And here I have, finally, I have these dogs that are very consistent and they are very much what I want. Um, but, but you have to keep bringing in mm -hmm. that diversity or you will paint yourself into a corner um, yeah. and start having, 
problems that you can't get away from. So I think that's the biggest pitfall is mm -hmm. just to recognize that it, as you're breeding, you, you have a goal and you're not going to get to the goal and sit there. That's yeah. not how life works, right? It's always dynamic. And so you're going to be getting to the goal and sort of circling around it and passing through it and going past and coming back again. Um, mm -hmm. That's, that's sort of more how you should visualize it rather than like, I'm going to get there and be done. And then I can, can yeah. keep just sort of producing animals that are the same. Like, yeah. That's not how life works. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. Um, yeah. And I'm trying to think, so in kind of more of a small breeder scenario, that would look kind of like having your favorite couple lines that you tend to bring in from your kennel. Yeah. Because I, I would imagine most people who have under, 50 dogs can't really stay within their kennel no matter what you do yeah that's a good question I, of what like, that would know. what that would look like um and i'm sort of thinking of it in terms of um types within breeds mm -hmm. to some extent right yeah. so if there's so it may be multiple breeders and multiple lines but they all sort of come together to be a certain type um but at that point, you are talking about a population that's that's large enough that you mm -hmm. can start sort of dribbling in totally more diversity. Um, but that if you just sort of, you know, keep breeding to, um, you know, the best show dog that is mm -hmm. very similar to what you already have. Yeah. Right. Yes. The, the same champion herding lines. Um, and then, oh my God, I'm now I'm struggling with epilepsy in my lines. And yeah. where did it come mm -hmm. from? Well, it came from the fact that everybody is gradually more and more related to each other. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, and I can also imagine that being beneficial for, like, I remember, I think it was, again, Sarah Strumming. She's getting a big old shout out on this episode. She shared. She's, I'm going to have to tell her. I'm going to message know, her after yeah. this. Well, yeah, I will as well. <laughs> Um, but, um, I think she shared a really good, I can't remember if it was a graphic or a description of kind of the three different types of border collies mm. as far as the working versus sporting versus, um, kind of pet show lines. Sure. And I remember reading that. And one of the big things that jumped out to me from the pet confirmation lines was they tend to have much better food drive. They're much more easily motivated by food. Yep. Yep. tend to be a little bit heavier boned, which maybe we don't want as much, but I was like, oh, actually, I might, it might make sense for me to intermittently layer in mm -hmm. a pet line border collie because yeah. I hate the picky eating thing. Yeah. You know, um, that's a great point is that you exactly. So if you stayed within um, the, is it the sporting lines or the working lines that you tend to? Think so Niffler is kind of, he's actually a little bit of three way already. So he's, <laughs> he's actually kind of nicely balanced. His pedigree is all over the place in, in a way that I think might turn some people off, but I, I actually kind of like, he's got everything yeah. from beautiful SAR dogs to kind of sketchy confirmation uh, color breeders, uh, <laughs> which that's the section we don't love as much, but he does have pet breeders in there. Yeah. And so exactly. So then that may be where you're sort of getting his ability to remain interested in food in the, mm -hmm. in the face of other stimuli. And you may also have him um, being more able to sort of be chill around the house. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I guess remembering that each of those lines has, um, pros and cons. Yeah. And the point is that you're going to, yes, you are going to bring in both the good things and the bad things when you bring in from another line, but then you're going to select for the good things Yeah, and against the bad things. And so it's, 
not about that first generation. It's about mm-hmm. the whole population and the direction you're moving the whole population in. And you're going to have to bring in good and bad and then select for the good. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I think thinking through, okay, how do we match so that we're getting something that we like along with the obvious yes. huge benefits of genetic diversity? Yes. Um, yes. You know, I wouldn't just like, even if maybe it might be easier to use a breed example, like I wouldn't necessarily just throw a Malinois into my lines. <laughs> yeah. Even though like Malinois or Border Collie is both very popular in the line of work I have, it might, I might be more likely to bring a lab in because A, I might really like that food drive, B, that friendliness, that stability, that kind of quintessential labby nature is yes. something that, you know, in a really ideal world, it would be nice to end up with a little bit of that in some Border Collie lines. And then we can breed back to the size and... Right, exactly. Um, you know, exactly. The, and- yeah. And remembering that that first generation may not be what you want as conservation mm-hmm. dogs, but it will be something that somebody wants. Totally. Um, that, you know, they can, they can make good active pets and sport dogs. And so, you mm-hmm. know, you, yeah. So it doesn't, we're certainly not talking about just throwing puppies away. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've got a good friend, um, Ursa Acri, who um, used to be my co-host on the Canine Conversations podcast. She just brought home just like four or five months ago now, a Shiloh Shepherd Belgian Tavirin cross. That's part of the Shiloh oh, Shepherd Outcross project. Um, mm, cool. And she was like, well, I really like Turves, but I've got a, a seven-year-old, so I wanted something a little bit less than Turves can be. So yeah. when she heard about this Outcross project, she jumped on it and it, she yeah. really seems to be liking the dog. So yeah. Patreon Book Club is in full swing. We just finished up Detector Dogs and Scent Movement by Tom Osterkamp and are about to start Canine Ergonomics, The Science of Working Dogs. To join our book club for three bucks a month, head on over to patreon.com slash canineconservationists. We also offer monthly group coaching sessions for aspiring handlers, puppy raisers, and pros, as well as a monthly rotation of free webinars, workshops, and roundtables with experts. Um, Again, three bucks a month, up to 25 bucks a month, kind of depending on what level of support you want to um, give and receive. Check that out at patreon.com slash canine conservationists. I hope to see you join us there soon. We've got a couple questions from Megan again over on Patreon. Um, And she was really curious about kind of thinking about breeding for again, like temperament, which in this case will also take to include not just the dogs, like affability and friendliness, but maybe their desire to hunt, their desire to play, their desire to engage with you, all these quote unquote drives that we can can or cannot try to operationalize. How how do you see good breeders thinking through that in their programs? And again, maybe are there any common pitfalls that you've seen? So let's try to figure out exactly I'm trying to figure out exactly what the question is. So yeah. how is it how do you breed for a particular trait given that that trait is it's not like breeding for coat color right so uh-huh. it's obvious exactly. how to breed for a black coat um but if we're breeding for affability it's harder yeah, yeah. um i mean i just you know selective breeding so you have a litter and if you're breeding for affability so assume you are breeding only for affability and i'll talk sure. about the the complexity of balancing everything next so if you're if you're only breeding for affability, then you take the dog that is the most affable from the litter and you breed that. 
And gradually you start moving the population in the direction that you're wanting to go. And you recognize that it's not a trait like black coat color. And so sometimes there'll be mistakes. So sometimes you'll take a dog, the most affable dog from the litter, and it'll turn out that he was really affable (laughs) because he had some really good socialization experiences as a puppy or because his mom treated him best or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that it was environmental less than genetic and perhaps what he has to pass on genetically. Um, perhaps he pr- then pr- doesn't produce the affability that you want, then you have to go back and, you know, sort of back up and sort of start looking for the right dog to breed. But essentially that's how you do it is, is you just keep, you know, breeding for whatever has, whatever is the farthest along in the mm-hmm. trait that you're looking for. And then the other part of that question though, is that you're never breeding just for affability. So how do you of balance course, it all? Yeah. And that's, I mean, that is a big question, right? Mm-hmm. So you do have to sort of take a look, you know, if you have a litter of five puppies and which one are you going to take? And this one is the most affable. And that one um, seems to have really good interest in, in food and that one has a great off switch um and all of those things are interesting to you and so you just have to do some amount of balancing like so what did i select for in my last litter have i been really pushing the affability thing hard for a while and having some good results with that then maybe now is the time to make sure that i take a break from that and select the dog that um, has that really good interest in food to make sure that i don't don't lose that. So um, I keep coming back to guiding eyes for the blind, but uh, I remember (laughs) having this conversation um, about that exact problem of there's certain things that it was very important to them. But if you focus only on those things, you'll lose a a few other things that while not as important, you don't want to entirely lose. And so you have to have this, this balance of I've been breeding for this one thing for a while and it's been going pretty well. And so I'm going to start making sure to breed in some other things. And obviously, again, that's much easier when you have multiple litters a year um, yeah. of multiple dogs and you have this large population versus, you know, the typical small scale breeder who might have one or two litters a year. It's yeah. hard to find the time to balance all of that. And you have to take, you know, a couple decades long, um, perspective, uh, which is, you know, another reason why I encourage people to not go it alone, to get into groups, work with other people, um, trade puppies with other breeders and, and take more of a larger scale perspective working with others. No, I love that. And one of the things that kind of sprung into my mind when you were think when you were talking about, you know, for example, this affability. So say we've got seven puppies and one of them is a 10 out of 10 on affability, if that isn't, you know, if that's maybe your third litter when you're kind of thinking about that trait, and we didn't really operationalize it, so, you know, listeners at home think about whatever you want for affability, because um, uh, it, it doesn't really matter necessarily how we right, define right. it here. Um, you might be better off with the dog who's the 7 out of 10, which is better than, you know, maybe you were breeding away from a dog that was a 4 out of 10 or whatever. Um, but if that dog is a seven out of 10 and is better structurally and has, yeah, like the better food driver, whatever, you don't necessarily always have to take the puppy in the litter that is 
the most extreme in the trait, but like at least a puppy who's moving in the right direction might seem like right. a good way to do it. And then also, I mean, this is kind of where co-owns can come in as well, right? Like exactly sending puppies out to exactly be raised and live with someone else and still have breeding access to them so that you don't end up, you know, I know one of the things that like personally, I don't ever really want to end up in a situation where I have like 15 dogs, which is right. still a really small breeding kennel. It's still right. really, really hard to have the diversity and the depth that you want with 15 dogs. And that's right. so many dogs. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely too much for my home. Yeah. Uh, I think yeah. co-ownership or, or guardian homes, however you want to look at it, is a great solution to this problem. And it may be that you put dogs out on co-ownership and you never want to breed them mm -hmm. um, because, you know, who knows how they're going to grow up. But it's nice to have the option so that that one that you're like, damn, that is not the dog I should have sent away. I should have kept that dog. Yeah. Um, having the, the option to say, I really want to breed that dog. Uh, once you realize that is really important. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's obviously easier with males. Niffler is on kind of an unofficial yes. co-owner breeding sort of contract with his breeder where I, I own him outright, but she very much so is interested in kind of having a mentoring hand with um, mm -hmm. his, his breeding future. And it's so much easier to have those discussions with a male versus talking about a female where, you know, I would have to pause her working career and send her right. home and and maybe send right. her out to the breeder and whelping is scary and <laughs> then uh, we have yeah, to get her no. quick in shape. And, and I, so much easier. it's so much easier. Oh my gosh. And uh, like, I think I'm pretty well convinced after speaking to Kate Graham from Catalyst Kennels that I would want um, a breeding female to still be a really good working dog and I would want to test and prove her in the line of work that I'm breeding for, but you know, it's, it's complicated. It's hard. <laughs> so yep. um, I, I know we're starting to run a little short on time. So we've got a couple more questions. I could talk to you about this all night, um, but we do both have other things to do. Um, a, another question from Megan is what are some of the, the tests um, for parents and for puppies that may be kind of mission critical especially kind of thinking broadly. Um, I know that's kind of impossible to say because obviously there are some breeds where like mitral valve disease tests are absolutely oh, imperative. Tests versus, genetic yeah, tests, right, right. behavioral tests. She just says tests. <laughs> I mean, it really depends on the breed, yeah. right? Or, or the mix. Um, mm -hmm. So I think the very first step would be to go, in the case of a breed, would be to go to the breed club and see what tests they recommend and then um not every breed club recommends all the tests that you might want to do so then there's you know the next step i think would be to start talking to other breeders in the breed um, and just learning a lot about the breed and what the issues are that that breed has um, for mixed breeds it is such an interesting question what what the tests might be and there's two ways of thinking about it one way of thinking about it is you should test for everything that both of the parent breeds have um, in the case of a breed of a of a mix that's a cross between two purebreds um and so if you have a mix that has five different breeds in it <sighs> would you test for all five and a geneticist would say well that's actually kind of silly for a lot of these tests because a lot of them really depend on um, a lot of these diseases and the markers that we found for the diseases really depend on the purebred background. And so if you're testing outside of that 
outside of the the pure breed, um, the test isn't telling you a whole lot. And, you know, so, and let me take a a step back as well and say, certainly if you're just talking about, there's some tests where you could just say the dog is of a certain size, so it's useful to test for hip dysplasia, right? Like there's, there's questions like that, that can be fairly straightforward, but in the, in terms of breed specific tests and testing mixed breeds, um, I think a lot of times geneticists feel that all those tests aren't necessary, particularly when you're getting down to that there's five different breeds or more in a dog um, and doing each of those breed specific tests is probably not all that informative. However, socially, it is still um, very challenging in many parts of the internet to publicly talk about breeding mixed breed dogs, particularly multi-generational mixes. And it is a lot better accepted by a lot of people if you can say, look at all these genetic tests that I've done. I think it's it's certainly very important to be very carefully ethical and responsible when you're breeding mixed breed dogs um, mm-hmm. because of the stigma. And one way to signal that you're doing that is by doing a load of these tests. So it's it's an interesting question right now, what the right tests are for mixed breeds. And I don't think the question has really been answered. Yeah. And it's, um, it's different really depending on what your mix is. And it's different depending on what your breed is. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and you know, I would imagine a lot of, a lot of projects, not all, you are still kind of within similar breed groups for your outcrosses so that may keep it a little bit narrower it can certainly help like if you're outcrossing within herding breeds Mm -hmm. um there's certainly some diseases that you would that you would be interested in looking for yeah i can imagine Um, it may be slightly simpler but you're also getting a little bit less genetic diversity if you're breeding border collie to aussie versus if you're breeding border collie to pug (laughs) um yeah. Correct. Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah. Of Ooh, course, there's yeah. not a genetic test for epilepsy, so. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's that. Or, um, or compulsive ball chasing. Uh, or, <laughs> compulsive ball chasing. Yeah, so really what tests, I mean, I can't, I just can't answer that without having all of yeah. the specifics, basically. No, I think that, I think that makes sense. And, you know, I think like for me going back to if and when I'm thinking about breeding Niffler, I would probably, at least for the first couple of litters, be staying within Border Collies. I'm not closed off to the idea of kind of some sport working mixes, but um, probably just for simplicity and kind of knowing what sure. he's producing, it would be easier if the first litter or two were also Border Collies. You know, obviously, it, 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 the health testing within the breed isn't as much the complicated question, but knowing that it's not likely that I'm going to have a lot of intact working conservation detection dog border collie bitches at uh-huh. my, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. that I can choose from, you know, I will probably be doing what I can to like really get out and get to know them and see what sorts of work or, you know, ideally it would be looking at, again, like given that I might not be able to find a conservation detection dog, like a wilderness search and rescue dog or a FEMA dog would mm, probably yeah. be my best bet. 
Yeah. But I'm not closed off to the idea of an agility dog if we can look, you know, and I don't know exactly what questions I would be asking or what I would be thinking about. Because it's also, you know, and this is a little bit different and not quite Megan's question, but I'm like, as the stud dog owner, yes, I want to be picky. And yes, I want to be careful about what I'm producing, but it's not, it's not really all that much skin off my back if someone wants to use Niffler to make a litter of agility puppies. Right. Exactly. Again, because he's a boy. If he were, if he were a girl, I would, uh, would be, be different. Doing, it would, it would yes. be different, but yes. yeah. I, I, yes. yes. Yeah. And especially because you're not going to have as like as many litters. Um, right. So I think last question before maybe we can kind of circle and route out with some FDC stuff is what are, and this is related, you know, we've got so many new tests coming out and so many health tests and so many different companies. How do you, if you coach people on this or give advice, what are some of the advice you give people as they're thinking through these tests? And, you know, is more testing always the right choice? Is that always better? Yeah. Um, so there's, so first of all, there's a, this differentiate between the two different kinds of tests that you might do two different kinds of health tests, right? So there's, there's health testing, like doing radiographs to look for hips and, um, echoes to look, to look for hips, to see if the dog has hips, uh, echoes to see if the dog <laughs> has a heart. Um, but those sorts of tests versus a genetic test to look for a marker for a disease to predict whether the dog is going to develop a particular disease in the future or has that disease already. Um, and mm -hmm. so the genetic tests are the ones that are new and interesting to people. And, you know, you can go get a panel and for one price, you get, uh, you know, hundreds of tests and, how many of them are useful and people are advertising things like my dog is clear on every test on this panel. Um, but how relevant is that? If the dog is a purebred, does that just mean that most of that panel is for other breeds? Um, yeah. So it's, it's a really interesting question of how much to, how much faith to put in these tests. And the unfortunate answer is that it really depends on the particular test that the different tests have different stories behind them. And some are going to be extremely predictive and some are not going to be extremely predictive. And um, I, most of the genetic testing companies should be pretty good about answering those questions for you. So when you call them and say, you know, my dog tested positive on this particular test, what does that mean? Um, most of these companies should be willing to put you in touch with an expert who will talk through what it means for your dog and potentially, hopefully for your dog's breeding program. I know they're definitely more prepared to talk about whether, you know, how likely does this mean that your dog's going to develop X disease? Um, they should be also have some ability to talk about how likely um, is your dog to pass on the mm -hmm. risk for X disease. Um, so I would, I would go there to get those questions answered. I would not go to your private practice, your general practice veterinarian. Um, so they are not trained in this at all. Um, and I would also suggest that there is an excellent paper, um, which I am blanking on the, I had, you and I had talked about it right before. Oh, uh, here, I've got it pulled up. It is pet genomic medicine runs yes. wild. 
Yes. That is an opinion paper um, uh-huh. by three um, three people who are, some are genomicists, some are veterinarians, um, about uh, basically about the state of pet genetic testing, genetic health testing, and mm-hmm. what some of the pitfalls are and sort of how to, how to think about it and how to approach thinking through uh, particular tests. Yeah. Yeah. This is definitely, I think we were saying before we got on, uh, I might just have to give Eleanor Carlson an email and ask yeah. if she wants to come in. Cause yeah, I would love to talk more about this because I like, I know, this question, Meg, again, from Patreon, asked it. She has so many good questions. She's, uh, <laughs> uh, I don't have favorites on Patreon, but um, if I did. Um, and um, We always like the people who ask us lots of questions. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like people are worried they're going to be annoying. And I'm like, no, ask more. No, um, it makes us feel valued. Yeah. Otherwise, I feel like I'm just talking into the void for an right, hour right. every week. Uh, <laughs> and then I, like, check my podcast analytics. I'm like, I'm, no, you're there. Um <laughs> I know you're listening. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so Meg asked this, but I was I was thinking similarly. So um, I to tell a little bit of a story. Again, we'll we'll keep t- picking on Niffler. We haven't talked about Barley at all because he's neutered. It's no fun. Yeah. Um, Niffler, I was brushing him and doing a tick check the other day, and I found kind of for like the the tenth time this little patch of fur on his rib cage and he's a blue merle um so he's mostly white and gray with black splotches and then he does have tan points so he also has some tan mostly on his cheekbones and then kind of in his elbow armpit area and the back of his thighs um just for a visual for anyone who hasn't seen him um but as i'm kind of brushing him i find this other patch that is kind of a much darker brownish color it's Mm -hmm. almost black it's very hard to see and i was like is this tweed am i looking at tweed here um it doesn't really matter for breeding um other than it's just interesting to know if that's something he potentially is expressing and therefore maybe could potentially produce depending on who he's matched with. So then I started going down this rabbit hole of, okay, so paw print genetics seems like they're the only ones that'll test the Merle allele length, which is the question we're asking when we're asking if a dog is tweed. Um, And then I kind of opened up their thing and they were like, okay, so here are the, here's the border collie panel. There's the the basic and then there's the extreme or, you know, whatever it is. I don't, (laughs) the super, super special. and there was like 50 tests on there and it was pretty expensive. And, you know, the first thing I did was then kind of start going out to these other border collie breeders that I consider mentors and being like, okay, do we, do you, do you guys just do these panels? Cause this seems kind of expensive or is it actually cheaper to kind of do the panels versus picking ad hoc? And it's, it's so overwhelming. And again, it seems like if I had more, money, it would be easy to just kind of throw every test at the wall or throw Niffler's spit at every test, I guess. Um, yeah. But that, again, seems like it could it could give this well, false sense of security. Uh-huh, right. Well, it, but it also backfires if he tests, um, you know, positive for a risk factor for something that you're yeah. concerned about. And it turns out that the test is not actually Any relevant good. to him, but yeah. it just came up because you were testing for everything. Everything. Um, well, and the other risk that I was seeing is I was like, gosh, if I spend this much money on all of these, plus his OFAs, plus his pen hips, plus his blah, 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 you know, elbows, shoulders, heart, yeah. ears, eyes, like, 
uh, you want to do a good job health testing, but I'm like, God, we're going to have to start charging 10 grand per puppy to just recoup costs yeah. here. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so what's, so what's important and what's not important. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Now I'm starting to visualize people listening to this and saying, uh, you know, Jessica's is advocating against health testing. No, and that is yeah, not, no, 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 definitely no. not what I'm saying. I am a big advocate for health testing. Um, I do think it's important to take a step back, take a look at what's in the breed and test for that. Um, yeah. and I, and I recognize that, um, people don't have infinite amounts of money. Um, health testing is expensive and is something that you should be doing. So I'm sorry, now, not, now I'm not talking to you, Kayla, but to people mm -hmm, sort of mm -hmm. in general, it is definitely something that you need to budget for when you're planning on breeding a dog. Yes. Um, that doesn't mean you need to do absolutely everything. It means you need to do the things that you have some reasonable amount of risk for. And that involves some amount of research into the breed and, and doing your own research, right? So there's certainly breeds. I'm not thinking of one in particular right now, but I know I've been told by various people, oh, I'm in X breed and the general recommendations are to test for these things. But I see a lot of this other thing in the breed and people don't test for it. And I, I feel like I should be testing for it because it's really important to me to breed away from that in my lines. So sure. uh -huh. not, so certainly the place to start again is to go to the breed club and see what they recommend and then to talk to other breeders and see what they recommend and start to build up an understanding of what most people in the breed tend to test for. But then to also come to your own conclusions of looking at uh, what, what is in the breed and are there some things, maybe there's some things that everybody's testing for that you really, no one's coming up positive for and you really don't need to test for it. Mm -hmm. Versus maybe there are things that no one's testing for, but you're actually seeing them in the breed and you feel that it's important to test for it. Again, I will caution that if there is something that everybody's testing for and you really don't think there's any need to test for it, recognize that if you don't test for it, you will get blowback. There yeah. will be people who are saying the only reason you're doing this is because to save money and you're an unethical breeder. And right. so if you choose that route, Make sure you have a lot of documentation and you're very clear about why you're doing it. On the other hand, if you are adding a test, uh, pretty much no one's going to complain about that. Yeah. Um, except for your pocketbook. So. Right. Yeah, that's very true. And yeah, I I know one of the, yeah, there's, there's just so much to think about and I appreciate kind of the nuance here and it's hard. Yeah. Because there are so many different breeds available um, and so many different things. It's, you know, it's like, yeah, sure. We can say that almost everyone's going to want to have hips checked, but beyond that, you're just going to have to spend some time on the computer and <laughs> yeah. figure it out. Um, and potentially even knowing what's possible in your own lines or I know I've seen a couple breeders that, you know, if they've got a litter where a couple puppies, again, in Border Collie kind of have more white on their heads than you would like. Mm. They don't necessarily test every litter's eyes and ears, but they did with that litter because the white had can right, correlate right. with deafness. Um, yes, exactly. So exactly. So that there's not a, an answer for every dog in the breed. There's an answer. There's an overall sort of breed recommendation and then having specific, you know, for specific um, lines or specific litters, you may make some, have some additions. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, well, Jessica, thank you so much. Um, do you have anything that you want to bring up about the FTC? Anything you want to promote? Anything that's coming up that we should know about? Um, nothing in particular that's coming up, but I, we always love having new people joining mm -hmm. the functional dog collaborative. Um, so I would, I would point people who are curious about knowing more to go to functionalbreeding.org. Um, we have links to podcast episodes, which mm -hmm. is a great place to start. And then of course the Facebook group where there is a lot of conversation and a lot of people from all different perspectives mixing. So it's a really interesting group where there's, um, there's, breeders breeders with with a variety of goals and mm -hmm. um and including purebred breeders mixed breed breeders outcrossers and then a lot of dog trainers and dog owners who are interested in the world of breeding learning about it um sort of participating in culture change so i would love to see more people come and join and participate and we always need volunteers too so get in touch if, Ooh, yeah. if that's something you're interested in doing what are some of the volunteer tasks that people might be excited about trying out? Yeah, so right now we are trying to, we're, we are successfully in the middle of spinning up a new social media, um, I don't want to say campaign because it would be sort of an ongoing project of um, having a, we're, we're developing content for our Instagram feed so that people would be able to follow that feed and get um, nuggets of information about breeding and finding a good breeder and socializing puppies and information like that shared on Instagram. So we're developing that and that kind of thing can be, we mm -hmm. love having people come help with that. And it can be anything along from like, yes, I'll help post or I'll help do the design or I'll help brainstorm content all the way along to just like, I have good organizational skills and I'll help keep track of you know, what the, where the project is and who needs to do yeah. what. So those, those kinds of things. Um, I actually am looking for a volunteer right now to help with some sort of, um, you know, paperwork, governmental type stuff, um, which would involve doing some research on the internet and coming back and saying, here's how you jump through these organizational hoops that, so that kind of Great. thing. Okay. Um, so if you have skills, we can use your skills. If you don't have skills, but you're good at everyone has skills, but if you don't have specific skills for us and, uh, but you're, you know, you're sort of good at organizing or, or doing that kind of stuff, then we can use that too. That's great. Yeah. And um, I know, like, I'm so glad the FDC exists. I am oh. really excited about a lot of what's going on there. And um, like, if people haven't listened to your podcast, episode, podcast at all yet, like, your episode with Trish McMillan about where dogs come from is probably my favorite podcast episode of all time. I, oh, thank you. <laughs> I think about it all the time. <laughs> wow, I will tell Trish. Yes, I like, I actually haven't listened to it for like a solid year. Um, so I probably need to go back and listen to it again, because it just it rocked my world. It was so good. Um, so if people haven't listened yet, maybe start with that episode. Um, <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, it's that is a good one for sure. Yeah. And if people are listening to this uh, podcast that you and I are doing right now, <laughs> and you're interested in learning more about like guide dog breeding programs and the international working dog registry, mm -hmm. we have episodes on that as well. The um, Jane, there's a Jane Russenberger episode that is about all this kind of stuff. And there are two Eldon Layton episodes, which are also about um, all this kind of stuff and, and a lot of interesting information. So the paper that we started out discussing, mm -hmm. a lot of the information from that paper is in those episodes. So I would also yeah. recommend those. 
Well, excellent. And we can, um, we'll make sure to link those specific episodes in the show notes in case people um, are struggling with the search function on their phone. So we'll try to make it easy for everyone. Um, Well, Jessica, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. and for taking the time, I really appreciate letting you pick, letting you letting me pick your brain about all things um, working dog breeding and functional breeding. No um, problem. It was great. You guys had great questions. So it was yeah, fun. yeah. And it's, you know, we could have gone all sorts of other directions as well. So uh, again, I appreciate it. And we tried to keep it short. Um, for everyone at home, thank you all so much for listening and joining us. I hope you learned a lot and you're feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and your skill set. You can find those show notes we mentioned, donate to canine conservationists, buy a cool sticker, and join our Patreon for our book club and monthly coaching calls all over at canineconservationists.org. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>